After years of organizing, after years of struggle led by low-wage workers, a $15 an hour minimum wage appears within reach, but it is still far from certain. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality, there's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are joined by Professor Richard Wolf, who talks to us every week in this segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. We'll talk about how the economy can be reconstituted on a new basis so that the needs of people and the planet come before profit. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The System is the Sickness, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from the Pandemic or Itself. You can check out his work at rdwolf.com, and rdwolf is spelled r-d-w-o-l-f-f.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, again, we are talking on a Wednesday. Yesterday, the impeachment trial in the Senate for Donald Trump began. Perhaps for most people in America, certainly most working families, certainly for poor people, and that's a growing number of the American people, their mind is probably a lot less on impeachment and more on whether or not they can pay the rent, whether they can feed their family. 50 million people, according to current statistics, are now food insecure, a modern euphemism for being hungry. And at the same time, the debate raging in Congress has to do with whether or not the COVID relief package should include an increase of the minimum wage, which is now at $7.25 per hour on the national level. It varies from state to state, but that's the national guaranteed minimum wage should be doubled to $15 an hour. Let's just talk about the significance of the debate over minimum wage. And also, there's a real debate and and a phony debate. So let's start there. Okay. Um, Before I get to the difference between the real and the phony, uh, let's just review briefly, because it is so important an indicator of where American capitalism is, what this minimum wage is all about. First, it should be understood that the minimum wage was first passed in the United States in the depths of the Great Depression, just shy of 100 years ago, when it was determined that people should not be required to do a week's work 
and be paid so little that they could barely get by in terms of surviving with the minimum food, clothing, shelter, and so on. And that even though there was enormous opposition by right-wing business interests who didn't want to have a minimum wage, it was passed finally, and various efforts to undo it over the last hundred years have been defeated. That's why we have one now. The idea was always to say that a civilized society should not condemn human beings to a life of labor and then not give them even the minimum. And let me stress the minimum is what the minimum wage is all about. The United States is either the lowest or among the lowest in terms of how much it pays. We may boast that we're a rich country, but when it comes to a minimum wage, we are way less than other countries, even countries that are quite like us. Take, for example, Britain, the United Kingdom. Uh, I went and checked, and when you convert British pounds to U.S. dollars, the minimum wage in Great Britain for the vast majority of workers is currently $11.95 per hour, not $7.25. There is no excuse for a wealthy country treating poor working people with a minimum wage that low. It's really nothing short of outrageous. Even more outrageous is not adjusting the minimum wage to what happens to the prices that people who earn the minimum wage have to pay for their food, their clothing, their shelter, and so on. And yet the last time the minimum wage was raised was in 2009, right? That's 12 years ago. In every one of the last 12 years, prices rose for food, clothing, shelter, and so on. Sometimes they only rose 1% or 2%, sometimes more. But if you don't adjust the minimum wage upward, and prices keep rising, it means the minimum wage can afford less and less as the prices go up. In other words, for the last 12 years, that is the regimes of Obama and Trump combined, no increase in the minimum wage. Since it is earned disproportionately by people of color, you can figure out what this implies about who's taking care of whom in the political structure of the United States. Okay, now let's turn to the debate. The people who want to raise the minimum wage, now after 12 years of its stagnation at seven and a quarter an hour, make a simple point. It's, it's basic human decency it's an attempt to overcome poverty, and it's an attempt to reduce the inequality that afflicts the United States. It's long overdue. It should be done. 
and it will have good economic effects, they say, because with paying people at the bottom more, that money will immediately be spent by them. It will allow them to stay in their homes by paying their rent, and it will be money that keeps the economy humming because as fast as you give it to those poor people, they will have to spend it and keep the economy working. That's the argument for it. And now in the official argument against it, what is the business community, which has always opposed the minimum wage and opposed raising it, what is the bulk of the business community, the Republican Party, the right wing in America, what are they going to say? They cannot say you shouldn't raise it since everybody who isn't ideologically blinded understands Uh, what it means to condemn a person uh, to make $7 and a quarter an hour. By the way, 40-hour week, if you do that, multiplied by 50 weeks out of the year, and you're going to be earning the lordly sum of $15,000 a year, putting you well below poverty in most parts of the United States. So it is an unspeakable thing. They can't oppose raising it because it looks as ugly as it is. So they had to come up with a fake argument. And here it is. If you raise the minimum wage, these folks tell you, well, then little businesses, small businesses will have to pay $15 an hour instead of seven and a quarter. And that will be more than they can afford. And so they will lay off workers, close their business. And so the Republicans in the right wing can try to emerge as champions of small businesses whom they are saving rather than poor workers whom they are savaging. That's the game. And so you hear endless discussions culminating last week in a report by the Congressional Budget Office indicating that, yes, indeed, if you raise minimum wages, there will be some businesses, small and medium, who will be so upset, so much profit lost by having to pay workers a decent wage that they will close and, in in fact, fire those workers. And therefore, the right wing says, we are protecting small businesses and the workers who would be fired from you nasty democratic progressives who want to pay them more. This way, both sides can present themselves as defenders of little businesses and workers on the right wing side and workers on the left wing side. Why is this a fake debate? because the two options are not the only options. For example, and let me be as harsh as I think this situation demands, if a decent society pays workers a proper hourly wage, which would be more, by the way, than $15 an hour, but let's leave it at that because that's what we're being told is the number everyone is thinking about. Are we as a society willing to pay workers a proper salary and a proper wage? And are we willing to preserve and support small business? I, for one, am in favor of both of those. 
I do not accept, and as an economist, I know I don't need to, that we have to choose between them. So here's what I would do. I would provide a $15 a minimum wage immediately, and at the same time, I would propose a number of supports for small business so that they could afford to pay a proper, decent wage, which, by the way, the workers want and the small businesses would appreciate. They would prefer to pay those workers better than they do now as well. And we can borrow from other countries how to do that. I'm going to give you three examples. Number one, you could pass a rule, a law that exists in other countries, that a certain percentage of all government purchases have to go to small businesses. That's right, 25%, 50%, whatever it is. The government has to buy from small businesses as an explicit support for small businesses. Here's a second example. Give them a tax break. Lower the taxes on businesses with less than 200 employees relative to the taxes paid by businesses greater than 200 employees. That kind of differential support would enable small businesses to pay $15 an hour. And number three, give small businesses subsidies, particularly in industries which are easy to identify where they have had to pay rising wages because of the minimum wage going up. Things like the hospitality industry, things like home health care, and so on, which is where much of the minimum wage is occurring and where you can target uh, the subsidies. And when people listen to me, let me remind them, in case you're wondering, that we already do this for big business. So this is not doing anything for the small business that we don't already do. And let me end with one example. At the current count, 26 professional sports franchises, football teams, baseball teams, basketball teams, and so on. 26 of them right now, which is a large portion of them, are owned by billionaires, people already the richest amongst us. What many of them have been able to do is become even richer by getting the government to subsidize their sports teams. And the way this is done is by having local cities or states pay for part or all of the stadiums in which those teams play. This is a subsidy. And one of the things that the professional billionaire-owned sports teams do with their subsidies of our tax money is it enables them to pay, you guessed it, $15 an hour or more to their workers. Well, if you're doing that for big business who doesn't need it, you certainly could and should do it for small and medium business who do need it and who can be monitored to make sure that part of what you're subsidizing thereby is not only the little business, but the ability of that little business to pay $15 an hour. So we don't have the poverty amongst us 
that you opened the program by summarizing. That's why it's a fake debate whether we give them a minimum wage and they lose jobs or we deny them a minimum wage so that they keep the jobs. That's putting all of the burden to be shared between the worker and the small business. And it leaves the big businesses where they like to be, laughing all the way to the bank. In 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. and others organized what was to become the Poor People's Campaign, basically an occupation of Washington, D.C., That was in the spring of 1968. Dr. King, of course, was killed just at the beginning on April 4th, 1968, when he was in Memphis to support sanitation workers who were on strike. But at that time, in 1968, when when poverty and civil rights were the issues in the country, and Johnson had said the war on poverty would address it, but, you know, the war in Southeast Asia took precedence. Anyway, back then, way back in 1968, the minimum wage was about $1.60, I believe. Now, if the minimum wage of $1.60 in 1968, if it was an equivalent based on the inflation calculator, like how much does it cost to buy things now compared to how much did it cost to buy things then, the purchasing power of $1.60 to be the same, to have the same minimum wage now as 1968, would it mean to have a minimum wage of $11.98? Now, we have a minimum wage now of $7.25. That means that the minimum wage in real dollars, what you can actually buy with your wages, is down by almost 50% compared to 1968 when poverty and the war on poverty was the issue. And when you think about those numbers and the number of people working at minimum wage or close to minimum wage, and the, the low minimum wage drags down the people who are making just a little bit more than the minimum wage, their wages are also sort of penned to the bottom. Uh, it, it then makes it crystal clear why poverty is so, so great in this, the richest country in the world. We did a little story yesterday about housing, that before COVID, before March 2020, 11 million households, one in four U.S. renters, one in four, were spending more than half, more than 50% of their pre-tax income just on housing. And we also did a story about how many people owe how much to utility companies. It's staggering. The number of people who can't pay the bill to keep the lights on and to keep the heat on, that's a staggering number. The National Energy Assistance Directors Association estimates that Americans, these are working families, owe an estimated $32 billion of unpaid gas and electric utilities bills. And as a consequence, Not right here in D.C. right now because of government action. There's a moratorium that will lift soon. But in Maryland and Virginia, people in the middle of COVID are losing lights. They're getting the heat turned off and we're in wintertime. But again, the link between the minimum wage and growing inequality and devastating poverty 
And for those who are not poor, who are not living that, it may seem like a, a story about a distant planet because if you're doing okay, you're doing okay. But for so many people, so many people, they can't pay the rent, they can't pay the utility bill, they can't buy food. And it's so linked to this issue. And you hear the debate in Congress, you would think the whole debate is about what's too much, what's too much, when of course the real issue is how can it be this low? Yeah, it's also a measure of a of a capitalist society. I mean, either you take care of your people as an economic system or you don't. And taking care of people begins by providing them with enough income, if that's how the system works, if you get income for your labor and then you use the income from your labor to go to the store and buy the goods and services you need to get by with your family, well, then the system is successful if it provides you with enough money in exchange for your work so that you can go and exchange that money in turn for the goods and services you need. Don't focus on the details. Focus on that simple relationship. And here in the United States, a country which claims to be rich and democratic, it doesn't do it. It fails to do that. It has millions and millions of people who don't get enough money to pay for the water and the heat and the food and the shelter and the clothing that they need. There's no other way to articulate the failure of a system than that. It is the perfect metric to see whether a system works or not. The only thing right-wing defenders of capitalism have left, given this failure, is to blame the victim, to blame the people who are poor for their poverty, to blame the people who are out of work for their unemployment, which is what they traditionally do, and which many of them are continuing to do, even though the public is daily told how and why the pandemic, the virus, uh, closes businesses and deprives people of work. The truth of the matter is, and this is what's happened in Europe, is that where the workers couldn't go to work, the government stepped in and paid their salaries so that they would not be without income because that's a failed economic system. Country after country has done that with fewer resources, less wealthy countries than the United States. The truth of the American capitalist system is that it has spent the last 10 months of the COVID crisis making already rich people much, much richer, while making a large number of poor people even poorer than they were. And now there is an opposition to raising the minimum wage when there ought to be a national apology to the millions and millions of people that have been horrifically impacted. I want to remind folks that a majority of the people in the shelters here in New York City where I'm sitting are families with children, that when we talk about the millions of people whose food isn't sufficient because they pay more than half of their income in rent each month, who are behind on their utility bills, a huge number of those people are children. Even if you need 
to assuage your conscience by blaming the adults for the poverty they suffer, which is not justified. But even if you do that, do you really want to do that with the children too? We live in a society that doesn't care, that doesn't understand what you are saying and doing in a society when you neglect dealing with the utterly innocent victims of a system's inability to give the people an adequate income to be able to live a life that isn't impoverished both financially, but also physically, educationally, medically, and so on. It's quite clear that while Joe Biden and the Democrats promised a $2,000 check uh, this was especially during the Georgia Senate runoff. They actually met $1,400. And then they also said there will be an increase in the minimum wage to $15 an hour in the COVID relief package. A couple days ago, Biden expressed doubt that his push to increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour would be included in a final coronavirus relief package. In an interview excerpt with the CBS News, Nora O'Donnell released Friday, Biden predicted Senate rules would prevent the increase from going forward. My guess is it will not be in it, he said. I don't think it's going to survive. This is because they're using the reconciliation mechanism to get through uh, a, a Senate vote so that it will survive and avoid the filibuster, which would require Republican support or some Republican support, 10 Republican votes for it. But okay, let's say reconciliation isn't isn't the vehicle that's available. When you hear the language, here's Biden. He says, my guess is it will not be in it. I don't think it's going to survive. I mean, he's the president. I mean, you had Trump come in four years ago and say, we're going to get billions of dollars to build a wall. We're going to do it no matter what. We're going to stop those people from Central America and Mexico from coming into our country. And, you know, whether it was bogus or not, he created like a fighting mood among his right wing xenophobic base that they were really going to do something. He wasn't like looking at the budget and saying, oh, I just don't think it's going to make it. He was all in for it. I mean, we have the situation where the right wing, regardless of facts, uh, certainly not caring about anything, really, just provides this sort of fighting spirit for its troops. And then you have Biden coming in, who obviously would benefit from raising the minimum wage. Well, I just don't think it will survive. Again, this is why the minimum wage today is 40 or 50 percent lower than it was in 1968 during the Poor People's Campaign when Lyndon Johnson, at least at that time, said there was going to be a war on poverty, whether he truly meant it or not. I mean, at, le at least it was a declaration of war against poverty. Nothing like that, really. And it's just a small handful of, I would say, pretty ineffective members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus who, on this issue at least, appear to be firebrands in contrast. Well, I think there's a political lesson here in what you say that, that should be made explicit. In many countries, and I'm thinking right now of France, a country I know uh, because of my family being partly French and so on, in France, politics is very clearly understood to have three major players, big business, little business, and the working class. 
and the basic politics pits big business against the working class, and it puts little business in the middle. And the question of that politics keeps raising, and this has been true for 100 years, is focused on the middle class. From the left, the working class says to the middle, look, you can ally with us, we're the majority, and we can make this society be good for workers and good for little businesses. Or you can be allied with the big businesses, work with them, and try to squeeze profit by sticking it to the working class. We want you to ally with us. What most Americans don't understand is that this is often successful. The reason that socialist parties in Europe are in the government as much as they are is because they get massive amounts of middle small business support, which they work at building. That's why in France, the government does buy from small businesses. That's why the government does tax them lower than big businesses. That's why the government does subsidize small businesses in ways that do not happen in the United States. And that's why the Socialist Party in Europe, let me give you an example. The government of Portugal today is a government of three parties in coalition, the Portuguese Socialist Party, the Portuguese Communist Party, and the Portuguese Green Party. If most of the listeners of me speaking now were not aware of this, that's because you live in the United States. That coalition has governed Portugal for the last five years. Nothing new about it. It was reelected very handsomely last year. Why is that the case? I don't know. That's because the middle in Portugal is allied with the working class and votes for those parties to get in there. Why? Because they think those parties in government will help the small business so it can pay decent wages, thereby securing the support of the worker and the small business. If the Democratic Party in this country weren't in bed with the big business donors, but really became a spokesperson in part for small business, you might build a comparable alliance which could and would win, which would have made it impossible for the real way, the real minimum wage to drop from 1968 to its current situation. That would have been unthinkable, which is why it didn't happen in European countries. Why, in fact, the minimum wage was raised there because their political alignment makes that happen. And the Democratic Party here hasn't figured out whether or how to do something comparable. It's clear that the struggle for the increase in the minimum wage, which, as you said, would be sort of a normal matter of politics in Europe, where working class organizations, socialist parties, socialist movements, communist movements, generally the left is stronger. That wouldn't be like a big debate. It may not even turn out to be a, a right-left debate. The way in the UK, having a national health plan like the national health system in the UK, where people have Medicare for all or even a better system than that, it's not considered really a, a right-left issue. Even the conservatives like 
uh, Boris Johnson, they wouldn't dream of you know suggesting, hey, we're going to end the national health system. Just the way American conservative politicians now would never say, oh, let's get rid of Social Security or let's get rid of Medicare. I mean, they might tamper with it or do it around the edges or whatever, but they couldn't come out and openly, frontally say, we want to get rid of these programs because regardless of whether someone's conservative or liberal, left, right, however they define themselves, these things are considered rights right now. They're considered fundamental achievements and and people take them as a right. So we have this weird debate which requires a, a stronger left intervention and the government absent that isn't going to do the trick. I want to talk about another financial issue that's going on sort of on the other side, on that pole where there's the accumulation of wealth, not the accumulation of misery. And that's within the oil industry. And I know this is off topic, but I really, really wanted to get your opinion about it. Apparently, some of these corporations like Exxon, now ExxonMobil, formerly it was Exxon and Mobil, but now it's ExxonMobil or Chevron or BP, Shell, apparently they're too small. We have a situation where, look at Financial Times, big oil's huge losses raise prospect of mega mergers, rise of clean energy and doubts about long-term demand force existential reckoning. So, you know, the danger of actually having clean energy striking at their business models. You know, this merger trend, this merger tendency, now we have a, a situation where ExxonMobil might become ExxonMobil Chevron or ExxonMobil Total or ExxonMobil Shell. I mean, this concentration of wealth such that whenever there are losses, the big capitalists, those who really have the big money, they're able to overcome and weather every storm and largely through the intensifying tendency towards monopoly. At a certain point, you might think, well, if it's so few companies, why not just make them public property? If they're not, quote, profitable enough, why not just take them over and reorganize them for the public good rather than always succumbing to the monopoly tendency? Well, there's two points here. Number one, the oil industry has known for decades what is going on now. In other words, they've known that the problems of global warming, of climate change, and so on are putting their business in great jeopardy. And they made the decision to fight it, to stall it off, uh, and to keep making as much money out of oil and gas for as long as they can. That is itself a fundamental choice to go for the private profit at the expense of social well-being. They should have been called to account for that horrific decision. Now they have been affected by a change in the timeline. The pandemic and the collapse of capitalism around the pandemic, in which the public health disaster worsens the crash and vice versa, has accelerated people not needing oil, this time because the economy isn't working, as well as we can't move the way we normally do, we don't use energy the way we once did, etc. And on top of it, the growing awareness of climate change and the danger it represents. They are in a death spiral. They have been for a long time. Now they can no longer stall it off. 
between the political opposition, uh, a president who says he wants to be a climate president, even though these things are mostly rhetorical, you put them together with the pandemic, with the shift of energy use around the world, and they know they're done. And this merger is just the latest way to save some money. Instead of having two expensive headquarters for the oil company, they'll merge and have only one. They can then lay off all kinds of workers that they duplicate, use each other's fleets of vehicles, tanker ships, Mergers are simply a profit-driven strategy when you're down to the end. And as to your point, you know, Karl Marx, in one of his writings, spoke with a sense of humor and irony that the monopoly tendency in capitalism is going to teach the mass of people that you don't need the company. When there's only two or three left, it's crystal clear that the government could and probably would do a much better job at lower cost delivering whatever that service is than this monopolist who, because he or she is the only one left, is ripping us all off way beyond what it costs. And we could do better and cheaper uh, if the government took it over. It's capitalism teaching its own victims how to get out from under the system's malfunction. That was Professor Richard Wolff. Professor Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work, the author of many books, the latest being The System is the Sickness When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Brian Becker.